0: I want to see if we can really blow out the mics. And on the count of three, I want you to like, think of what really made you so mad today. Because there's probably something today that made you mad. What made you so mad today? (gasps) Shit. (laughs) Just Put it inside your chest right here. And when I get to three, I want you to let it out. (laughs) All right. One. Two, three. Ah! (laughs) Holy shit, this is going to be a good night. Hi, this is Catherine Lasota, host of LIC Reading Series, a monthly event at LIC Bar in Long Island City, Queens. In this episode of our podcast, you're going to hear the readings from our November 12, 2019 event, which was an evening that focused on the topic of female rage. We had with us Lily Danziger, Leslie Jamison, Darcy Lockman, and Shelley Oria. Now as you know, we are very proud to be in Queens here at LIC Reading Series, so before each reader reads from her work, I ask them to share a brief anecdote about the borough of Queens. If you want to hear the panel discussion from this evening, just listen to our next episode. And now let's jump into the readings from our November 2019 event on Female Rage, starting with Lily Danziger, the editor of the anthology, Burn It Down. Lily Danziger is a contributing editor and columnist at Catapult and assistant editor at Barrow House Books. She's the editor of Burn It Down. Let's hold that bitch up. Burn It Down on sale over here at Surrey Bookshop. It's an anthology of essays on women's anger from Seal Press. And she's the author of Negative Space, a reported and illustrated memoir forthcoming from the Santa Fe Writers Project in 2021. Keep your eyes open. Her writing has been published by Longreads, The Washington Post, Glamour, Playboy, Rolling Stone, and more. Lily lives in New York City, and she spends way too much time on Twitter, where you can find her, at Lily Danziger. That's super cool. Also... Kirker's Review says of Burn It Down that it's powerful and provocative, and this collection is an instructive read for anyone seeking to understand the many faces and pains of womanhood in 21st century America. And Publishers Weekly says it's a cathartic and often inspiring reading experience. Let's do some cathartic applause for Lily. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Hi everybody. Um oh yeah, so Queens anecdote first, right? Um, Queens has a very special place in my heart because it's the only place I ever lived alone. Um I, you know, lived, did the whole roommates thing for a long time. And then when I was 23, I was living with one of my very best friends in East Village, and I just had this feeling, it's like I have to live alone. Because what if I never get to, you know, what if I meet somebody and I end up living with them forever and I never got the chance to live alone and just have a space that was mine and full of books and cats, right? So I got this sunny little studio apartment in Astoria and I filled it with books and I got a cat and I lived there alone for two years, which is where I wrote the whole first and second draft of Negative Space, which is now going to come out in a year and a half. Um, It's also where I ended up meeting and dating the person I married. So now I will hopefully not live alone again ever for, <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> uh, so I'm glad that I did that. Um, and that's my queen's anecdote. Um, and I'm just going to read the introduction of Burn It Down. Um, you know, I, I was going back and forth when I was editing the collection of whether or not I should include an essay of my own. And in the end, I decided not to because 22 pieces didn't even feel like enough to cover <laughs> this topic. It could have been volumes and volumes. Uh, so I didn't want to take a spot away from another great writer, uh, but now doing events and stuff, I'm like, I kind of wish I had put an essay and it would make this a lot easier. But since Leslie, one of the great contributors to Burn It Down is here tonight, I feel like it makes a little more sense for me to read the introduction uh, rather than, you know, and because of the theme rather than I was just do it. Okay. <laughs> so... Uh, Throughout history, angry women have been called harpies, bitches, witches, and whores. They've been labeled hysterical, crazy, dangerous, delusional, bitter, jealous, irrational, emotional, dramatic, vindictive, petty, hormonal. They've been shunned, ignored, drugged, locked up, and killed. Kept in line with laws laws and threats of violence, and with insidious, far-reaching lies about the very nature of what it means to be a woman that a woman should aspire to be a lady and that ladies don't get angry. Millennia of conditioning is hard to unlearn. Even when asked specifically to write about their anger, many of the women in this book described it at first from a safe distance, explaining coolly and calmly what they were angry about. So accustomed to having to rationally justify any emotion they might feel while making sure not to actually display that emotion that even in a book about anger a big part of the editing process was me saying it's okay get angry <laughs> and pushing writers to put their anger on the page the more that happened the more i realized that was what i really wanted this book to be i wanted this to be a place where our anger could live a place for us to take up space after generations of being told to shrink to rage after a lifetime of being told to behave to, uh, <clears throat> i wanted these pages to sizzle and smoke with women's awesome rage. No longer tucked away or extinguished, but right here on the surface, so get ready or get out of the way. That meant something a little different for each writer. Essays in this collection explore the borders where anger meets other emotions. Erin Carr on when anger turns into guilt, Megan Strahlstra on when fear turns into anger, and Marissa Corbell on when anger masquerades as sadness through involuntary rage tears. Others delve into the ways that anger intersects with identity and how some women's anger is seen as more socially acceptable than others. Shaheen Pasha on the complicated anger of being a Muslim woman in America. Kia Brown on surviving the anger she's felt at herself and her disability. Samantha Rydell on experiencing anger differently before and after gender transition. And Monet Patrice Thomas on the ways that black women especially are not allowed to get angry. And many describe the ways that women, brilliant alchemists that they are, have found to turn their anger into whatever they need it to be. Strength, motivation, protection, healing. Some of the essays in this collection rage like wildfire, some smolder like embers, some glow like heated metal, but they all radiate the heat of women bringing their anger out of hiding and into the open air. There's been so much discussion recently of the power of women's anger how it can be harnessed as a political engine, how it's been repressed for too long and is now going to erupt like a volcano and change the landscapes of society for the better. And I'm swept up in the revolutionary catharsis of our communal outpouring as the next girl, as ready to say no more, to say fuck you, and to say me too. But amid all this talk about women's anger as an idea, a force, a tool, I wanted to also look at that anger on its own terms, to give writers an opportunity to express and explore their anger, not as a means to an end, but for its own sake. Our anger doesn't have to be useful to deserve a voice. Just as women who are so often reduced to sexual objects or baby makers, caregivers, mothers, virgins, and whores deserve to be considered as whole individuals on their own terms and for their own sakes, I wanted to give their anger space to exist solely for itself, without being packaged and used for someone else's gain. That's what this anthology is for. There's so much to be angry about. (laughs) I'm angry that we're destroying the planet and dooming ourselves to an unlivable future. Angry that profits are prioritized over human lives. Angry that racism is such a huge and deadly part of nearly every aspect of society, but still so many refuse to see it. Angry that violence against women constricts the edges of our lives until we're crouched down seeking safety that doesn't exist and angry that willful ignorance and misinformation have taken over political discourse so that it feels impossible to convince so many people that any of this is a problem. Every woman I know is angry. But this anthology is not about the things that make us angry. It's about us and all the many ways we feel and live with our anger. There have been times in my life when my anger has made me small and hard and brittle. And there have been times when it's made me expansive and unstoppable, like fire. There have been times when my anger was frantic, sharp like splinters shattering out in every direction. Like when I was a teenager, grieving the loss of my father by raging at the world, getting drunk and high first thing in the morning, getting into fistfights in the street, stealing, vandalizing, dropping out of high school, transforming myself into a scantily clad, malnourished middle finger flying in the face of anyone who crossed my path. That's what the memoir's about. Check it out, 2021. <laughs> <laughs> But lately, my anger is deep and wide and steady, not as immediately visible under the surface of my put-together life, but just as present. Lately, my anger is a place inside myself that I breathe into to make myself larger, taking up space and making space for others. By refusing to let my boundaries be ignored, by standing up for women in trouble, by stoking the fires of the incredible writers in this collection and bringing their work and their anger out into the world, as a salve for all the other angry women out there. This anthology is an invitation. It's 22 writers saying to you what I said to them. It's okay, get angry. Come rage with us. Our collective silence breaking will make us larger, expansive, like fire, ready to burn it all down. Thank you.
0: Keep it going for Lily Danziger. Yay! Keep your eye out for that memoir in 2021. Uh, that was so great. I'm so happy that Queen's proved so useful for you in writing and in love. <laughs> um, and also that was just, I think, a perfect kickoff to our evening. It's a really fantastic anthology. Um, and we do have some copies here for sale. Ooh, the next one's Darcy Lockman. Yeah. Yeah. Darcy Lachman is a journalist turned clinical psychologist who works with individuals and couples in New York City. Maybe we should talk. (laughs) Her first book, Brooklyn Zoo, chronicled the year she spent working in the psychiatric department of a city hospital. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Atlantic, among others. She lives with her family in Queens. You win. Her latest book, All the Rage, let's hold that up, nice bright pink. All the Rage, Mothers, Fathers, and the Myth of Equal Partnership. (laughs) I love you too, Carl. I will say, what's that? No, no, I actually prepped him earlier tonight. I was like, look, we're gonna have a book tonight. This is what, and and (laughs) made the dinner. Yeah, 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 send me an email. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get into it, don't worry. Yeah, It was published by Harper in May of 2019. Um, Darcy and her book, All the Rage, have been profiled or featured in Jezebel, Parade Magazine, Bust Magazine, NBC News, and more. You can find clips of Darcy speaking online about it. I think it's gonna be super fun to have a clinical psychologist up here on our panel later. So I want you all to give a warm, not clinical welcome <laughs> to Darcy Lachman. Hi.
2: Um, So I was at my uh, weekly Tuesday night play date earlier, of course, where I made dinner for seven children and three adults. Um, And I was telling my friends I was going to have to give a Queens anecdote tonight. And I was like, but I live in Queens, so my whole life is a Queens anecdote. (laughs) Um, But I will say, I moved here kind of reluctantly from Brooklyn in 2008, my husband and I were just finishing grad school and no one would rent us an apartment in Brooklyn because we didn't make enough money. And we had some friends who lived in Forest Hills and said, move here and we could afford Forest Hills. So we moved there. And I will say, I hated it. I I was so unhappy. We moved from, you know, Brooklyn in 2008. um, And They say that like the thing you love most about your spouse becomes the thing that you kind of eventually grow to hate, right? Everyone has heard this before. And the thing that I, the thing that I hated the most about Forest Hills was the thing that I now love the most about Forest Hills. So it's kind of the opposite, which is that, and I've been in New York for 25 years and I've lived all over. So I'm pretty sure I've been in every neighborhood in New York City. And Forest Hills has the claim on being the least hip neighborhood in all of New York City. I'm almost positive that this is true. And, and I love it dearly for that for that reason. Um, so when I talk about this book with people who have read it, they're often surprised that it's not a book, Carl, that's angry at men. Um, <laughs> All the rage is really about like the anger that comes from living in systems, and that system in this case is really the patriarchy. Um, so tonight I'm going to read a passage that isn't really about fathers so much, but about something that's been called intensive mothering. Has anybody heard that term? It's a term coined by the sociologist Sharon Hayes in the mid-90s, and it kind of refers to the ethos of parenting that developed around that time that really um, instructed mothers that they had to put their children first all the time, no matter what else they were doing. And if they did anything else, they were failures as mothers, and it was unacceptable. So the thing that sociologists talk about um, is that the other thing that happened in the mid-90s, around the time this intensive mothering became the thing, was that um, the labor labor force participation of mothers peaked. So there was all this anxiety about what was gonna happen to the children now that all the moms were working. And that anxiety was kind of met with this cultural insistence that mothers do everything for their kids all the time and they do it perfectly and better than everyone else and more enthusiastically. Um, So this section of the book is about intensive mothering. (laughs) (laughs) Quiz alert, are you an intensive mother? Throughout the early years of the 21st century, the study of intensive mothering was largely anecdotal, based on interviews. Developmental psychologist Holly Schifrin and her colleagues at the University of Mary Washington in Virginia wanted to parse the impact of the ideology on large swaths of women. We were struggling with these issues ourselves. Why is there so much pressure on mothers? We wanted to quantify it, Schifrin said. So they developed a 56-question measure they called the Intensive Parenting Attitudes Questionnaire. We talk about parents, but when we say parent, people really think mother, she explained to me. Each question addressed one of five dimensions, and I'll use those dimensions here to give you a bastardized version of the thing. Let's call it a quiz. On a scale from one to five, where one is strongly disagree and five is strongly agree, rate the following statements. Number one, women are uniquely qualified to be primary parents. Number two, there is no more pleasurable job than raising children. (laughs) Number three, a mother should constantly strive to optimize her child's brain development. Number four, motherhood is the most challenging job in the world. Number five, mothers should tailor their lives to revolve around their children. Tally up your score. It will range from five to 25. The more Kool-Aid you've consumed, the higher your number will be. Schifrin and colleagues administered their questionnaire to 181 mothers of children five and under, along with a handful of measures of mental health. They found that intensive mothering beliefs and life satisfaction are inversely correlated. As one goes up, the other goes down. Women who agreed that mothers alone have a special talent for parenting felt less supported and more overwhelmed. These respondents also reported feeling generally dissatisfied and unable to cope. Women who strongly agreed that motherhood is extremely challenging also felt less satisfied and more stressed and depressed. Finally, child-centeredness, The idea that mothers should tailor their lives to revolve around their children predicted lower life satisfaction. Schiffrin wondered, if intensive mothering is related to so many negative mental health outcomes, why do women do it? She told me, I don't know who raised the bar, but once it gets raised, there's anxiety that if you don't go along, your child will be left behind. Other kids will have an advantage. My daughter had to do a diorama in first or second grade. When I went to her classroom for conferences, I saw dioramas I couldn't have done myself. I thought, is she going to get an F? How can she compete? Her project wasn't as good as the others because hers was done by a (laughs) (laughs) seven-year-old. I I try to find balance to resist, but it's hard not to buy into it when everyone else is doing it. With her example, Schiffrin demonstrates how the line blurs between intensive mothering and helicopter parenting. The much-maligned helicopter parent, and when I say parent, I mean mother, hovers over a child and later young adults to ensure that she never fails at anything, from crossing the monkey bars to writing a term paper. Intensive mothering can cover that ground, but its objective is a different matter. An intensive mother is not working primarily to assure her child's absolute success, but to establish her own goodness as a mom at what is, after all, the most important thing. A good mother, it has been said, is in the mother-appropriate place at the mother-appropriate time. Schiffrin studies both helicopter parenting and intensive mothering. She's found that while the former is bad for kids, the latter is mostly bad for mothers, who then, of course, are shorter with their kids. Bridget Schulte, whose husband chose beer over helping with Thanksgiving meal prep in an earlier part of the book, remembered staying up until 2 a.m. one February night making cupcakes for her kids' Valentine's Day parties. The next day, I was a complete bitch to my children because I was so tired. Who was I baking those cupcakes for? What was important there? I was doing it for the mommy police as if they were watching me. It's hard to fight the feeling that they are. Working mothers may be the most vulnerable to anxiety about those police, to imagining they must compensate for time not spent in service to their children. As a result, they sign up for what Nebraska comedians Kristen Hensley and Jen Smedley call momming so hard in order to make up for pursuing interests of their own. Christine in Illinois said, when we first moved to the suburbs, it was a culture shock. There weren't as many full-time working moms. I was self-conscious. I wanted my kids and us to be accepted. Mom sent home organic treats and homemade whatever, the best crafts I've ever seen. So when it came time to do Valentines, I thought we'd better really do them. I didn't feel like I could just buy the 99 cent Pokemon box. I had to make them by hand. Now I'm trying to see where I feel comfortable cutting corners. A 2018 Parents Magazine headline epitomized the rhetoric that mothers find themselves subject to. Hilary Duff doesn't feel guilty about me time and you shouldn't either. The assumption embroiled there does not need much unpacking. (laughs) The article itself, like the many it resembles, makes clear that actress Duff's me time is laudable only in the context of her properly intensive mothering. Full-time working mothers traded in demonization for prostrating themselves before their children for all the world to see. In an article that purports to be about self-care, the writer uses the bulk of her allotted word count to report that Duff teaches her son about philanthropy, takes him water skiing, plays tag with him to the point of exhaustion, ventures out with him in the rain for the explicit purpose of jumping in puddles, plays with toys, makes cookies, and builds forts." (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Only once Dove's maternal bona fides have been established, may we celebrate the fact that she doesn't feel guilty for reading, quote, one chapter of a book while Luca plays Legos in the next room. <laughs> in exchange for all those forts, there is your culturally sanctioned me time. Party on. <laughs> Arizona state psychologist, Sonaya Lathar, has done work similar to Holly Schiffrin's. Luthar has found that the presumed guilt Parents Magazine is not really trying to absolve you of is linked to maternal distress. So is role overload, the outgrowth of momming so hard. Luthar's research goes a step further, investigating resilience and the adjustment to these challenges. She found that the women who managed motherhood most adaptively had strong relationships with other adults. These women reported feeling unconditional acceptance, comfort from loved ones, authenticity in relationships, and partner and or friendship satisfaction. Luthar wrote, These findings are extremely encouraging in showing the strong protective potential of close, authentic relationships in buffering women through the myriad challenges of motherhood. Her conclusion reminded me of something an older male professor told my class during grad school it's the mother's job to take care of the baby, and the father's job to take care of the mother. Before I had kids, this struck me as benignly sexist. Now it also feels incomplete, because what is a father taking care of a mother if it is not also taking care of the child? But here is where we lose them. Fathers do not swim in our water. In fact, as the traditional pressure on men to be the primary breadwinners has lifted, the traditional pressure on women to be primary caretakers has not. George, my husband, often sees my prioritization of our kids' needs as absurd. He's nice about it. You're a very good mommy, he's taken to saying, and I am startled by how much I like to hear it. On the other hand, his almost unflagging focus on his own needs feels equally outlandish to me, and my response is often testier. I'm going to get an espresso when we get home, he says in the car late one Sunday afternoon on the way back from our family lice recheck, as I am planning dinner in my head. (laughs) I pause before responding with language we learned in couples therapy. (laughs) I'd prefer it if you took the kids to the playground while I cook. He complies, but with some irritation, because really he feels no more compelled to meet my parenting standards than he does to give up carbohydrates to fit into his oldest jeans. If his pants get tight, he buys a bigger pair. If there's an hour before dinner, he plants the kids in front of the television. If he wants an espresso, he goes up and gets himself one. My ex can sleep through the kids saying, Daddy, I'm hungry. Nancy, who works in communications in Las Vegas, told me, I can't. Erica in Portland said, I wonder if my husband and I just have different expectations. He'd be okay if they didn't go to birthday parties. I want them to have fun things to do, and I want to spend time with them. I don't want to sit on my phone with them while they watch TV. I don't know whether he has the same desire. If I lowered my expectations, perhaps I'd feel less resentful. It's hard to relax into that if one is a woman, living in a culture that purports to celebrate motherhood while actually propagating ineffable standards. We are no longer demonized for working. In exchange, we prostrate ourselves before our children for all the world to see. We beckon our partners to join us. They have no interest in dadding so hard. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Lots of applause for Darcy Lockman. All right. <clears throat> yes. You said something in there earlier that it would be nice to dive into later, which is why do women keep doing things that make them so, so something? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Our next reader is the editor of our second anthology tonight. <laughs> Her name is Shelley Oria. <clears throat> Shelley Oria is the author of New York One, Tel Aviv Zero which earned nominations for a Lambda Literary Award and the Edmund White Award for Debut Fiction, among other honors. In 2016, she co-authored a digital novella, Clean, commissioned by WeTransfer and McSweeney's, which received two Lovey Awards from the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences. Oria is the editor of Indelible and in the Hippocampus. Let's hold that up. It's a beautiful paperback, green with pink writing. It matches Darcy's. You could get a twofer there. Two pink cover-themed books. Um, available on in the hippocampus is an anthology of me too fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. It's published by McSweeney's in September of this year. Her fiction has appeared in the Paris Review and elsewhere. She's been translated to other languages, has won a number of awards. She lives in Brooklyn, New York, where she has a private practice as a life and creativity coach. Lots of interesting perspectives here tonight. Publishers Weekly says this collection. Is far from an endless prey to suffering. The writers offer a sense of communal feeling, bravery, and triumph. The results are bracing and urgent. I think it's urgent we get you up here on the microphone right
3: now. I think I'm go with this one. Can I go with this one? Is that okay? Can I stand? Can I do like all the things differently? Oh my God, I think all different. <laughs> like so? Nah. But thank you, Carl, <laughs> for participating needs I didn't have, but I could have on another night. Hi, everyone. Um, okay, Queen's Anecdote. I feel like I'm trying to figure out in my head how to not make it as long because the story is that it's sort of my burrow of firsts and there's so many firsts and I'm not going to tell you all of them, but I'll sort of pick the writing related ones. So first of all, Um, I taught fiction for the very first time in Queens. And this was such a big deal because English is also my second language. I was in grad school at the time, barely figuring out how to speak. Well, speak English. I was I could do that back then. But writing in English was super new. Hebrew is my first language. And then this was like an internship while I was at Sarah Lawrence. So I was like, no, just no. And then I had to do it. Um, And Queens was was very kind to me in the process. And then I graduated from Sarah Lawrence. We're not going to do this like all the way to 2019, I promise. Um, I graduated from Sarah Lawrence and uh, my very first reading out of school um, was in Queens. And I was trying, I actually texted like three different people today, trying to remember the name of the bar or the reading series. I just know that it was a guy named uh, Andrew Richmond. Maybe someone here knows Andrew. He also goes by Gus. No. Okay. Anyway, Andrew Gus had a reading series. He now lives in St. Louis and has two or three kids, but uh, he's great. Back then he had a reading series and that was my very first. I was such a nervous reader back then, but like somewhere another part of this um, lovely, I think actually neighborhood. I'm pretty sure. I was standing and shaking and reading fiction for the first time. Um, and then real quick, at some point, I sort of moved back to Tel Aviv because the economy died. I don't know if you guys heard of that, the end of 2008. And I'm doing air quotes because I ended up moving back. But uh, in the middle of that time, I came back to visit, visit New York and kind of realized I can't I have to just live here again. And so that first visit, um, I ended up just crashing with a friend who was like going to Spain and gave me her apartment. I had an apartment in Sunnyside. And I was like, I just need to live here again. Anyway, um, so that was all very heartfelt and not in the spirit of the rage that we're all <laughs> feeling here tonight. So I'm going to read about murder in a second um, to make up for it. But before I do, I want to say um, I read Burn It Down a few months ago. Lily and I did uh, an In Conversation piece for Bomb Magazine. And so I read Burn It Down uh, when it was in galleys. It is one of the best books that I've read in a long time. Also Leslie's essay in there is killer, of course. Um, and so I hope you buy Indelible, but also buy Burn It Down. It Thanks. will not disappoint you. Um, <laughs> So a quick thing that now I'm feeling all also super this is the longest intro in the history of all introductions. I'm I just need you all to know that I'm feeling self-conscious in the moment in this moment because of my friend Nicole who heard me a few days ago uh read this very same story in New Jersey. I just I I I knew you would say that, which is why I said it, so that I would feel a little bit better. Thank you for saying that. I'm still feeling self-conscious, especially because of this little thing that I'm about to say now, which she has heard me say a few days ago. But I do always emphasize because unlike Burn It Down, I like most anthologies. This is not an anthology of essays, not only nonfiction, nonfiction, fiction and poetry. It is multi-genre. It is a thing that's very important to me for a number of reasons I will not go into. But I am emphasizing it so that you know That what I'm about to read, which is my own story in this book, is fiction. I'm going to say it again. This is fiction. And in a few seconds, you'll understand why this felt very important for me to emphasize. The first man I killed (laughs) was probably a sweetheart. He didn't say anything dirty or try to start a fight like some of the others. He just asked if I knew her, the woman in the picture. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Roxy used to tell me, you talk like whoever's listening already knows what you're about to say. I always wanted to ask, why shouldn't I? Now it's too late. From what I understand, Roxy's father named her Roxy, just Roxy, not short for anything, because he was Greek. And in his language, the name means star, or something close to star. He was a poet, possibly a bad one. On the day she was born, he glared at her for hours through the viewing room glass, a baby among babies, and wrote a poem about the newborn who shone like a star in his sky. Later, his wife read the poem, and perhaps because she had nothing else to say, she offered they name the child after the title. When Roxy told me the story, the red of her hair, a dark brown that day, a color trick it played when cut short, and her eyes made softer somehow by the new edges. I asked her whether her father wrote the poem in Greek or in English. We were sharing ice cream that was supposedly made of lemonade, a hip new import from Switzerland or maybe Sweden. On the bench outside the fake ice cream parlor, Roxy gave me a look that suggested my question was dumb. She did that sometimes. At random moments, all kinds of feelings from the previous week or month, perhaps feelings that had gone unexpressed because Ro- Roxy always worked hard to stay sweet, suddenly found their way to her eyebrows, her lips, the creases of her forehead. She seemed unaware of her face whenever it responded before she did, so I learned early on to smile and wait. When her words caught up, they often changed the subject. There's no way this is actually lemonade, right? Roxy said that day. That's the best thing I've ever put in my mouth. I made a pamphlet after Roxy died. The front features a picture of her and the two dates bookending her life. It says, this woman died of sexual harassment. The back cites statistics. Tens of thousands of women die of sexual harassment in this country every day, that sort of thing. Of course, the number refers to death, small and big, quiet and loud, personal and public, but the brochure doesn't go into that sort of detail. My point was to bring attention to the larger issue. Roxy would have been disappointed in anything less. The story of a a woman is a story of a nation, she'd have said. When we keep our stories so small that people can't see the world through them, we fail. Or perhaps she wouldn't have said that at all. Perhaps that's just me assuming again that my listener knows what I'm about to say. But if I commemorated the life of one fatality without lamenting the larger war, who would I even be? I still use my pamphlet sometimes. Situate myself on a street corner, not unlike the one in my old town where Roxy was killed. Shout out some truths. Distribute that carefully crafted piece of glossy paper to passers by. But not often. It causes friction with my new girlfriend, who believes it's unsafe. There are men out there just waiting for an excuse to rape, she says. She's right, of course. We have seen our world turn against us. We have seen women's bodies violated, then jailed for the crimes they suffered. We have seen laws modified to protect the strong. But what my girlfriend really means is, and then you'll off somebody again, and then we'll have to move again. (laughs) She'll never say it. She doesn't want to appear jealous of a dead girl. Instead, she hides my weapons when she thinks I'm rageful. The good knife behind the meat in the freezer. The gun in the laundry basket. Silly girl, I say and pull her close. You think I need anything more than these? I show her my hands. Roxy and I never even officially dated, but I would have thrown myself in front of that truck if it meant saving her life. And one night, I was dumb enough or drunk enough to admit that truth to my girlfriend. Why? Why? she asked, assuming the casual tone of a woman not threatened in the least by her lover's willingness to die for another lover. I said I didn't know why. Not to avoid an answer, though it did hit me right as I confess that this was one honesty I would live to regret, but because I truly had no idea. I didn't mention that I knew it right away, too, that my willingness to die for Oxy wasn't something that developed over time, but something I felt the first day we met. That day, At the park where I used to play with my dog, I watched her with the two kids I later learned she nannied. Twins, a boy and a girl, who kept shouting words they should not have been shouting. Shit, shit, sex, butt. (laughs) Roxy's face, Roxy's gentle face, looking at once appalled and amused, and thought I would die to save this woman's life. A foreshadow? A warning from my unconscious mind of what lay ahead? I doubt it. I think we all have people like that walking the great earth. And if we're lucky, we meet one of them and we immediately know. It's as simple as a pair of pants in need of laundry. I would give my life for yours. Designing my pamphlet was an elaborate process. The font choice alone took months. I kept staring at different letter shapes, tracing their movement on the page with my finger. Is this one, Roxy? I would ask. Is that one, or that one, or that one? Sometimes. I'd hear her pick a font, then laugh. Just kidding. She was taunting me because she didn't believe my activism mattered. It's over, she'd say in my head, meaning maybe her life or maybe the whole world. The street where it happened isn't a busy one. I've always wondered what role the quiet played in Roxy's death. Because, well, imagine this. The same Roxy, the same man, the same come over here, baby. The same, look at that ass move. The same guttural sound of a hungry animal. But one difference. Cars. Roaring. Would Roxy still run away from him and into traffic? I try not to think about it. Another thing I try not to think about is Roxy in the hospital. She was out of the ICU and seemed okay. Bruised and shaken up, but not dying. Reality is a tricky force. Its credibility allows it to get away with all kinds of deception. I was in the cafeteria getting a chai latte when she collapsed. A nurse came to get me. I don't remember what this nurse said, but I remember she called Roxy Rosie. I remember the room looking pale, all the color sucked out. Are you okay? The nurse asked. She grabbed my arm. A tight grip that said only an asshole would let herself faint in this moment. I remember wanting to punch this nurse. I remember knowing she was the last woman I would ever look at without wondering if her body, like Roxy's, might be hiding its quiet leading from me. This was how I learned. We are always dying. I'm gonna stop here, thank you.
0: Keep it going for Shelley Oria. Thank you for reading that um, uh, that from your collection, The Indelible and The Hippocampus. It really is amazing that it's a multi-genre collection, and so it's cool to hear some nonfiction and fiction tonight. And our final reader of the evening is Leslie (laughs) Jamison. I didn't mean to invoke Oprah's tone of voice <laughs> when I did that. That was accidental. I'm sorry. Leslie Jameson is the author of the New York Times bestsellers The Recovering and The Empathy Exams, as well as the novel The Gin Closet. A National Magazine Award finalist, she has contributed to publications including The New York Times, The New York Times Book Review, The Atlantic, Harper's Magazine, The Virginia Quarterly Review, and The Oxford American. She lives in Brooklyn and directs the graduate nonfiction program at Columbia University, her latest essay collection is Make It Scream, Make It Burn. And it was published by Little Brown in September of this year. Kelly from a story Bookshop is holding that up for you. It's available for sale tonight and in all of your independent bookstores. This is the only place that you should buy books is in your independent bookstores. Okay. Kirker's Reviews, by the way, I just want to say um, Leslie's also a contributor to Burn It Down. I believe we're going to hear your essay from that book tonight, which is so fabulous. But I want to do a little... Shout out for Make It Scream, Make It Burn because it's available here also. Kirker's review says it's commendable essay collection by one of the leading practitioners of the form. And Heller McAlpin writes in a review for NPR, this is a writer who is incapable of being uninteresting. (laughs) Don't worry, bar set real low. Come on up, Leslie.
4: Thanks. It's going to come up in just a few minutes as part of my queen's anecdote. Um, yeah, I thought this dress I love, but I can only wear it on certain days. Some days it feels kind of tactless to wear a skull dress. But when you're doing an event on female rage, it feels like perfect to wear a skull dress. Yeah. Um, I love that you guys asked for a Queen's anecdote and I couldn't even choose. I was like, do I talk about being 21 and working as a temp for Citibank and having to go to the horrible Citibank tower to get my fingerprint in the basement? Or do I talk about being 26 and dating a lawyer in Astoria? And there was this one amazing night. I would go to trivia night at his Astoria bar every week and... There was one night where the final question that everything depended on was like what year the New Yorker had been had begun. And everybody in the room just like turned to look at me they were like it's <laughs> finally going to pay off that you're dating a writer. And I got it right. And it was like one of the best moments of my night. Um, but I, I I actually I want to talk about this recent night in Queens, also in Astoria. Um I'm in the middle of a separation, which is terrible. I'm not going to turn this into group therapy. But um, one thing is that I have this free night every week and I've been using it to do all these crazy things, including going to this amazing drag show in Astoria where I wore this dress and like six different queens told me your dress is amazing, which felt like the ultimate validation. Um, but there was something about going, you know, taking this thing in my life that has felt extraordinarily hard and pivoting it to open up these like fissures of possibility in my week, where I feel like I'm living in this city in a completely different way than I have and doing these things that I never would have done otherwise. And that drag show in Queens was like one of the most explosively ecstatic instances or iterations of that. Um, And I'll always remember it for that reason. So uh, yeah, Queens, Queens. Queens and Queens. Um, And uh, yeah, so um, I'm going to read a little bit from this essay that's in Lily's incredible anthology, which I'm so honored to be part of. Um, So honored, actually, to read with all these ladies tonight. It really feels something. I think you put on a really good thing here. It has a really, really great energy. Um, And yeah, intensive mothering. I wrote this, I originally wrote this essay for the New York Times Magazine. And in my type A personality way, had it all planned out that I was going to close this piece right before my daughter was born. Um, and, and then she was born three weeks early. So I actually ended up closing this piece uh, on my hospital bed. And I was thinking, I guess that's not what an intensive mother does, close the piece on her hospital bed. Anyway, was what I did. Um, I've never read from it and I'm, it feels, yeah, really great to be able to read from it here. So I'm just gonna read a little bit because we have this panel. It's called Lungs Full of Burning. For years, I described myself as someone who wasn't prone to anger. I don't get angry, I said, I get sad. I believed this inclination was mainly about my personality, that sadness was a more natural emotion for me than anger, that I was somehow built this way. It's easy to misunderstand the self as private when it's rarely private at all. It's always a public artifact, never fixed, perpetually sculpted by social forces. In truth, I was proud to describe myself in terms of sadness rather than anger. Why? Sadness seemed more refined and more selfless, as if you were holding the pain inside yourself rather than making someone else deal with its blunt force trauma. But a few years ago, I started to get a knot in my gut at the canned cadences of my own refrain. I don't get angry. I get sad. At the shrillest moments of our own self-declarations, I am X, I am not Y, we often hear in that tinny register another truth, lurking expectantly, and begin to realize there are things about ourselves we don't yet know. By which I mean that at a certain point, I started to suspect I was angrier than I thought. Of course, it wasn't anger when I was four years old and took a pair of scissors to my parents' couch, wanting so badly to destroy something, whatever I could. Of course, it wasn't anger when I was 16 and my boyfriend broke up with me and I cut up the inside of my own ankle, wanting so badly to destroy something, whatever I could. Of course it wasn't anger when I was 34 and fighting with my husband, when I screamed into a pillow after he left the house so my stepdaughter wouldn't hear, then threw my cell phone across the room and spent the next 10 minutes searching for it under the bed and finally found it in a small pile of cat vomit. (laughs) Of course it wasn't anger when during a faculty meeting early in my teaching days, I distributed statistics about how many female students in our department had reported instances of sexual harassment the year before, more than half of them. A faculty member grew indignant and insisted that most of those claims probably didn't have any basis. I clenched my fists. I struggled to speak. It wasn't that I could say for sure what had happened in each of those cases. Of course, I couldn't. They were just anonymous numbers on the page, but their sheer volume seemed horrifying. It demanded attention. I honestly hadn't expected that anyone would resist these numbers or force me to account for why it was important to look at them. The scrutiny of the room made me struggle for words just when I needed them most. It made me dig my nails into my palm. What was that emotion? It was not sadness. It was rage. This essay, among other things, was an excuse to write about Tanya Harding and Nancy <laughs> Kerrigan. And that's a little bit of what I'm going to read next. Tanya Harding was an object of fascination, not just because of the soap opera she dangled before the public gaze, supposedly conspiring with her ex-husband and an associate to plan an attack on her rival figure skater Nancy Kerrigan, but also because she and Kerrigan provided a yin and yang of primal female archetypes. As a vision of anger, uncouth and unrestrained, the woman everyone loved to hate exploding at the judges when they didn't give her the scores she felt she deserved, Harding was the perfect foil for the elegant suffering of Kerrigan, sobbing in her lacy white leotard. Together they were a duo impossible to turn away from, the sad girl and the mad girl, wounded and wicked. Their binary segregated one vision of femininity we adored, rule abiding, delicate, hurting, from another we despised, trashy, whiny, angry. Harding was strong, she was poor, she was pissed off, and eventually, in the narrative embraced by the public, she turned those feelings into violence. But the movie I, Tanya* illuminates what so little press coverage at the time paid attention to, the perfect storm of violence that produced Harding's anger in the first place, her mother's abuse and her husband's, which is to say, no woman's anger is an island. When the Harding and Kerrigan controversy swept the media, I was 10 years old. Their story was imprinted onto me as a series of reductive but indelible brushstrokes. One woman shouting at the media, another woman weeping just beyond the ice rink. But after watching I, Tanya and realizing how much these two women had existed to me as ideas rather than as women, I did what any reasonable person would do. I googled Tanya and Nancy obsessively. I I googled, did Tanya ever apologize to Nancy? I googled... Tanya Harding boxing career, question mark, and discovered that it effectively began with her 2002 celebrity boxing match against Paula Jones. Two women paid to perform the absurd caricatures of vengeful femininity the public had projected onto them. The woman who cried harassment versus the woman who bashed kneecaps. In the documentaries I watched, I found Harding difficult to like. She comes off as a self-deluded liar with a robust victim complex, focused on her own misfortune to the exclusion of anyone else's. But what does the fact that I found Harding difficult to like say about the kind of women I'm comfortable liking? Did I want the plotline to be that the woman who has survived her own hard life, abusive mother, abusive husband, enduring poverty, also emerges with a likable personality, a plucky spirit, a determined work ethic, and a graceful, self-effacing relationship to her own suffering?" The vision of Harding in I Tanya is something close to the opposite of self effacing. The film even includes a fantastical reenactment of the crime, which became popularly known as the Whack Heard Round the World, in which Harding stands over Kerrigan's cowering body, baton raised high above her head, striking her bloody knee until Harding turns back toward the camera, her face defiant and splattered with Kerrigan's blood. Even though the attack was actually carried out by a hired hitman, this imagined scene distills the version of the story that America became obsessed with, in which one woman's anger leaves another woman traumatized. But America's obsession with these two women wasn't that simple. Another story rose up in opposition. In this shadow story, Harding's Harding wasn't a monster but a victim, an underdog unfairly vilified, and Kerrigan was a crybaby who made too much of her pain. In a 2014 Deadspin essay, Confessions of a Tanya Harding Apologist, Lucy Madison wrote, she represented the fulfillment of an adolescent revenge fantasy, my adolescent revenge fantasy, the one where the girl who doesn't quite fit in manages to soar above everyone's bullshit without giving up a fraction of her prerogative, and I could not have loved her more. When Kerrigan crouched sobbing on the floor near the training rink right after the attack, Newsweek described it as the sound of one dream breaking. She famously cried out, why, why, why? But when Newsweek ran the story on its cover, it printed the quote as, why me? The single added word turned her shock into keening self-pity. These two seemingly contradictory versions of Harding and Kerrigan, Raging Bitch and Innocent Victim, or Bad Girl Hero and Whiny Crybaby, offered the same cutout dolls dressed in different costumes. The Entitled Weeper was the unacceptable version of a stoic victim. The Scrappy Underdog was the acceptable version of a Raging Bitch. At first glance, they seemed like opposite stories, betraying our conflicted collective relationship to female anger, that it's either heroic or uncontrollably destructive, and our love-hate relationship with victimhood itself. We love a victim to hurt. We love a victim to hurt for, but grow irritated by one who hurts too much. Both stories, however, insisted upon the same segregation. A woman couldn't hurt and be hurt at once. She could be either angry or sad. It was easier to outsource those emotions to the bodies of separate women than it was to acknowledge that they reside together in the body of every woman. Thanks.
0: That's today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you found us. Special thanks to LIC Barr, the Astoria Bookshop, and our amazing intern, Nadine Santoro. A big thank you to our sponsors over the years LIC Corner Cafe, Sweetleaf Coffee, Court Square Diner, and The Gantry Restaurant. This episode was recorded by Carl Jacob and mixed and edited by Justin Alvarez. Our theme music is by Pat Irwin. The LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota. See you next time in Queens.